Hello and welcome to Stories from India, a podcast where we talk about myths, legends and folk tales from India. I am your host Narad Muni and I'm a mythological character myself. I have the gift of eternal life and knowledge of the past, the present and the future. By profession, I'm a traveling musician and a storyteller. So the way I'm doing my job is by podcast. In this episode, we are back to the Ramayan. Kind of. I usually space out topics, but I had a couple of listeners express interest in Shurpanakha and her family history after we had covered the story of her encounter with Ram, Lakshman and Sita. So today, we'll learn a bit more about this princess of Lanka who was a trigger for much of what happened later in the Ramayana. A quick disclaimer. Shurpanakha is a villain through and through. There is no ambiguity about any of her actions. Sure, Lakshman's action of mutilating her seems a bit excessive to some. But Shurpanakha is very far from being a victim by any measure. We'll cover her family history a bit and detail an incident in her life which made her resent her brother. But she did not resent him enough to prevent causing the rest of the Ramayana. Ravan, the villain of the Ramayana, and Shurpanakha, his sister, can trace their ancestry back to Brahma, the creator of the universe, and a member of the Holy Trinity, along with Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the destroyer. Well, in a way, since Brahma created the entire universe, you could argue that everyone traces their ancestry back to Brahma. Not so fast. You see, Brahma created 17 children directly. Sure, he created other people too, but these 17 children were more or less directly created from his mind. I happen to be one of those lucky 17. Or unlucky, considering that my birthday wasn't at all special, if you think about it. One moment, I wasn't there, and the next, I was. Clearly, family gatherings were less than normal, and sibling bonding was weaker than it is in normal families where kids are brought up together. So it was, that though Pulastya was one of my brothers, I definitely did not have the kind of fraternal relationship portrayed in the Disney movie onward. Pulastya was scholarly and wise. Like some of our other brothers, he was in the greatest hall of fame of them all, as one of the stars in the Saptarishi constellation. Anyway, he had two sons, Agastya and Vishrava. 
Agastya is a major presence in many stories in Indian mythology. We'll definitely cover some stories of him in the future. For now, let's focus on the other son, Vishrava. Vishrava was wise and scholarly just like his father and his brother. His reputation spread far and wide and he married Ilavida, the daughter of the sage Bharadwaj. At this point in the family tree, the focus shifts from academic knowledge to practical matters like winning wars, taking over kingdoms and such. That began with Vishrava's and Ilavida's son, Kuber. Yes, this is the very same god of wealth whom we have referenced in a couple of previous episodes. But Kuber had to acquire his godhood. And he did that much later. If all these family relationships seem confusing, it's because they are. So I've drawn a little family tree to illustrate. Check it out on sfipodcast.com or the link in the show notes. Let's cut over to Lanka, where the Asur king, Sumali, ruled. With his wife Ketumati, he was discussing a very important problem. Why aren't we finding anyone? Surely someone wants to marry our daughter, asked Sumali. It's because we have no equals among the Asurs, his wife replied. Everyone we know and socialize with are Asur. They are afraid of rejection. We should broaden our search. To whom? The Danavas? he asked, referring to yet another family that had descended from yet another of Pulastya's brother, and also my brother. We are Asurs, he continued. Everyone not an Asur hates us. Well, what about an enlightened scholar like Vishrava? asked Ketumati. You think he'll suggest a solution? asked Sumali, not very encouraged by this. I'm saying he is the solution, replied Ketumati. But he's so old and he's already married besides, replied her husband. Hello, wake up. You're in ancient India, as if being married has ever stopped anyone, said Ketumati. There was truth to that. For example, Ram's father, Dasharath himself, had three wives. Sumali, realizing this, facepalmed and agreed it was worth a shot. Ketumati asked her husband, Now, can I trust you to arrange a happy union between our daughter and Vishrava? When Sumali nodded meekly, Ketumati continued, Remember, you have to be very subtle. We have to trick her into it. This calls for tact. Neither Kaikeshi nor Vishrava 
should suspect even for a moment that we are setting them up. Sumali had a cunning plan and he set that in motion, cleverly arranging for his daughter Kaikesi to accidentally bump into Vishrava. He sent Kaikesi into the woods to fetch some water from a well, which is a very weird thing for a king to ask a princess to do. Especially a king with hundreds of helpers in the palace. Kaikesi, who was certainly smarter than Sumali gave her credit for, went straight to Vishrava's hut and caught him, just as he was preparing to depart for the well, as per his daily routine. Hi, she said. Oh, it's you. You're the girl from my dreams he said. But he was not smiling. And why doesn't that make you happy? Was it a nightmare? She asked. Kind of. What brings you here anyway? He asked her. My parents, they're trying to set us up, you and me. And I thought, great idea. So how about it? She asked. I wish I could, dear lady, but I can't. And why not? She asked. Does the dream have anything to do with it? Indeed it does. Basically, the short version is that our child goes on to become a real terror. And not in the affectionate way some parents lovingly refer to their kids. Tell me more, she said, getting out the popcorn. Vishrava explained everything. He basically narrated everything in the Ramayana. But when it had yet to happen, I'll skip over those parts, because spoilers. When he was done, her first question was not about the evil child. I can't help but think of Angulimala's story. Sure, there was a prophecy that he was going to be an absolute villain. But his parents chose to bring him into the world anyway, back in episode 74. That worked out alright in the end, didn't it? Why shouldn't the same thing happen to our child? And you yourself said... Our youngest child is going to be good. So, isn't that worth trying to work this out? That somehow convinced Vishrava. So much so, that he separated from his first wife, Ilavida, and took up precedence with Kaikesi. Kaikesi soon had kids. Several kids, actually. Ravan... Kumbhakarna, Shurpanakha, and Vibhishan. Ravan actually did great academically. He had gobbled up, figuratively, all the knowledge that he could. However, his mother provoked Ravan at every opportunity she got, constantly comparing him to his half-brother 
Kuber, who was talented, no doubt, but not nearly as powerful as Ravan. He's even got a flying chariot, she would say to Ravan. It's pulled by birds. It's not the chariot that flies, it's the birds that pull it, he would point out. But as Kaikesi often said, that was just a technicality. Besides, I have ten heads, Ma. Kuber only has one, he used to remind her. At which Kaikesi replied, But there's only one throne of Lanka, and guess whose ten heads are not in it? The very pedantic Ravan began to object. Why would my head sit on the throne? That doesn't make any practical sense. But Kaikesi dismissed it as another technicality. Maybe she was driven by vengeance. After all, Kuber had taken over Lanka by force and was now its ruler. Her parents must be avenged, she thought. And if not her son, who else could do it? So that's precisely what happened. Ravan soon defeated Kuber. He had some superpowers after all that my father had given him. Seriously, if you have only recently started hearing this podcast, you may not be aware of it. But my father, Brahma, the creator of the universe, has this terrible tendency to easily give in to any villain's prayers and to give them all kinds of superpowers. It has caused so many problems for everyone that you'd think we'd have learned from it by now. Yet, it falls to other gods and goddesses to clean up the mess. And this time, with Ravan, it was Vishnu's turn. But you can find out more about that specific bit in the earlier episode 7. Well, while Vishnu, as Ram and Lakshman, was growing up in Ayodhya, Ravan was running a very tight ship. A control freak, if ever there was one. His brothers and his sister couldn't even sneeze without his permission. So it was that when Shurpanakha decided to marry the Dana warrior with Dyudjiva, Ravan pretty much lost it. He swore to destroy the groom in what is probably the earliest example of honor killing. However, Ravan's wife, Mandodri, intervened. You can see, can't you, she said, that you have driven her to this. You made her lead a sheltered life in Lanka. And now, what do you expect? And with your jiva is not the most terrible choice. She could have married a human. Think about it. Ravan, with all of his ten heads, did think about it. Ultimately, 
if there's one person that Ravan could listen to in his deranged, freaky state, it was Mandodri. Gradually, things began to change. After lots of little nudges from Mandodri, she had the cooks make his favorite dishes. She had his ministers keep the most stressful problems away from him. She even had the palace decorated with childhood pictures of Ravan and Shurpanakha. Ravan playing with Shurpanakha. Shurpanakha complaining about Ravan not closing all his eyes when playing the seeker during hide and seek. Shurpanakha complaining about Ravan using all the virtual reality headsets in the palace at the same time. Ah, pleasant childhood memories. Slowly, Ravan came around to the idea of accepting his sister's decision. All right, send her a card, said Ravan, finally to his wife. Wish her a happy married life and all that sort of thing. I already sent one this morning, said Mandodri along with a bottle of wine. I'm really glad you came around. Things were okay for a while after that in Lanka, Ravan thought. There was no chance his half-brother Kuber would come back. Ravan had defeated him in battle. That weasel has sneaked off to Swarg to Indra's palace and he's bought himself godhood. Sure, I could go right in and pluck him out of there, thought Ravan. But I won't. He's not worth the effort. Besides, I've got bigger places to capture. I have grand plans for conquest and expansion. Over in Vidyajeva's house, the atmosphere was different. Shurpanakha was happy at dinner time. But her husband looked worried. Why the long face? She asked him finally. He was about to answer. But then, he spotted how she was eating her food. Oh my God, your nails! That's disgusting! I know your nails are as long as forks and sharp as knives. But please use a fork and knife, he said. No skin off my nose, she said. Now please answer my question. It will be skin off your nose, especially if you scratch it, he replied. Then, when she glared at him menacingly, he quickly decided to answer her question. She was known to have quite the temper. The fact is, he began, I'm not sure whether or not I should be worried. Your brother wrote me a letter. Which brother? Khar, Dushan, Vibhishan, Ravan or my half-brother Kuber? Be specific and don't mumble, she told him. Ravan, he needs my help. He needs your help? Don't make me laugh, Shurpanakha said. 
well, maybe he doesn't need it, but he's certainly asking for it. All he's doing is conquering the underworld, or hell, or Patal Lok, or whatever you want to call it. And I'm not sure whether I should help him, said Vidyajiva. You should. Listen, let me nail this down for you. She ignored her husband wincing at the bad pun and continued. I understand Ravan's personality better than most people. All ten of his personalities, in fact. If he's asking for your help, it's not your help he's after. He wants your company. This is a sign that he has accepted you as his brother-in-law. He's simply trying to bond. I bet the whole military campaign thing is a sham. While your armies are fighting the real battles, you two will probably be sitting at a card table, sipping beer, playing poker, and so on. That explanation resonated with her husband. And so, he dusted off his best clothes, picked up a cartload of beer and pretzels, and made for Ravan's palace. Shurpanakha had not been wrong. Ravan had been trying to view his brother-in-law with something less than animosity. So, the attack on the underworld had just been an excuse. It was a done deal for Ravan. He might as well have conquered Patalok without Vidyajiva's help. But it was for the sake of his societal obligations that he was going through the motions. The whole situation was unpleasant. But that all changed when Vidyajiva pulled out a pack of cards and suggested a game of poker. Ravan was all in. He was one good poker player. And it's not because he had a good poker face. Quite the opposite. He could maintain 10 different expressions on his 10 heads. That made it incredibly hard for his opponents to read him. Like the rash people that they were, they bet using real money soldiers, and other kinds of resources. Well, it turned out that Vidyajiva was an even better player than Ravan. And pretty quickly, he had accumulated a nice pile of gold from his brother-in-law. If Ravan had been a sport about it, everything would have been okay. And actually, in the grand scheme of things, Ravan was a sport about it. Or at least nine-tenths of him were. One of Ravan's heads, probably head number seven, was a sore loser. So as Vidyajiva was shuffling the cards, head number seven spoke up. Vidyajiva, you must be one fine card player. I know, because I'm one fine card player. 
and I can't even spot how you're cheating. Immediately, Vidya Jiva stopped shuffling the cards. The wide grin dropped from his face entirely and a look of rage crossed his face. Brother-in-law or not, Ravan would have to pay for that comment. Vidyajiva unsheathed his sword and asked, Care to say that again? But now, he had escalated the situation. All ten Ravan heads unanimously glowered in anger at Vidyajiva for his threatening action. In a contest between Vidyajiva with sword and Ravan with no weapons and no armor, there could only have been one outcome. Ravan casually flicked his finger in the direction of Vidyajiva. That sent the Dana warrior crashing through the wall as if he had been punched by Superman or something. He landed far out in the sea, where some sea monsters would finish him off if by any chance he had managed to stay alive. Who cares? I don't, thought Ravan. Turns out, Shurpanakha cared. A lot. She was upset. And just like one of the main characters in the movie Godfather, she was completely convinced that it was her brother who had engineered her husband's demise. Ravan had told her that he had no choice but to act in self-defense. Otherwise, Vidyajiva would have killed him instead. I swear by your wolverine claws, Shurpi. He was such a sore loser. After he kept losing game after game, he wanted me to give him his money back. I gladly did, you know, just to show my goodwill. It was just a game after all. But he wouldn't listen. He wanted me to authorize an announcement in the news tomorrow that he beat me in poker. Now, I know I'm a grade-A villain, but I don't want to lie to anyone, and certainly not my own subjects. So I refused, and then he charged. Then I had no choice but to protect myself. It was head number three that was speaking, but all others were nodding in agreement. Shurpanakha knew for sure that it was all a lie. Long association with Ravan had taught her that her brother was the sole loser. Her childhood memories of him included him using his extra heads to an unfair advantage in soccer and rugby and complaining about the results even after he had won. In one instance, he had complained that he had won a soccer match by a difference of 58 to 0 if you penalize all the illegal goals the other side had scored. And what's more, he sincerely believed his own lies. 
So it was in this case that despite his apparent sympathies at her widowhood, he sent out a tweet that said, Vidyajiva was a terrible commander, and I, your beloved king, had appointed him out of pity. He did not resign, and he was begging not to be fired. But I decided to fire him because I love the kingdom. What a pathetic loser. He couldn't even play his cards right. Well, that's one problem solved, thought Ravan. But his thoughts soon took a turn for the worse when he saw Shurpanaka sharpening her nails. They were as sharp as knives. Maybe it might be a good idea to keep her away from him. She was not easily fooled. And Ravan knew the longer she was around, the greater the risk to himself. She needed to cool off. So he announced that she should go away. Shurpi, don't you think it's time for you to find a new husband? He asked her, tactlessly. It's only been a day since Vidyajiva's gone. She glowered and said, You told me you still had search parties looking for him in the sea. Can't believe how slowly time passes when you're grieving. Yeah, the search parties are done already. They found an airplane in the sea. It said Malaysian Airlines on it. But there was no sign of your husband. My scientists tell me he probably evaporated before he hit the water. Or maybe he dissolved in it. So no point in continuing the search. People don't evaporate and don't dissolve in water, she said, exasperated. That's terrible advice from your scientists. Hey, you're the one who keeps asking me to follow the science. Now you're criticizing me for it. I don't like your tone, Shurpi. I'm your king, and you should give me some respect. All I'm trying to do is to help. I just wanted to say, go to India. A part of it is still part of our kingdom. Our brothers, Khar and Dushin, are there in the Dandaka forest. Go stay with them. It's a nice holiday location and they can help you find another husband. Someone more to our taste. Shurpanakha refused. But when Ravan rephrased that as a command, she had no choice except to obey. She took along with her her newborn baby boy, Shambri. So that's what she was doing in India when she ran into Ram, Lakshman and Sita a couple of episodes ago. Coincidentally, her son, Shambri, had been killed by Lakshman accidentally. All because Shurpanakha's boy had assumed the form of a tree. And Lakshman needed wood for the cabin he was building. But that story is for another day.
that's all I have for now. Like I said before, Shurpanakha was a complete villain. You may be tempted to think that she had had a hard life. Being upset with her brother? Sure, that was okay. Wandering away from home? Perfectly acceptable. Trying to marry again? Absolutely reasonable. But trying to eat Sita? That's where Lakshman drew the line. And drew first blood. The Saptarishi constellation that Pulasthya is part of is the one known in the Western world as Ursa Major or the Great Bear. We have talked about this before in the context of other Rishis and in one case about Arundhati in mini episode 42.5. In the next episode, we'll do a folktale from Gujarat. It's about a princess who can summon her husband anywhere she wants. All she has to do is to turn on the fan. If you have comments or suggestions, or if there are particular stories you would like to hear, please do let me know by leaving a comment or a review on the site sfipodcast.com or tweet at sfipodcast. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get notified automatically of new episodes. Thanks to all of your listeners for your continued support and your feedback. The music is from purpleplanet.com. That's purple-planet.com. I'll see you next time.